Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. We have a member of our community on today's podcast talking about her experience. Before we get to that, many of you are already members of Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group, which is our daily online group. We have multiple sessions in every single time zone. When you join, you can usually get into a session within a few hours because we have so many. So to check out the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group schedule, go to btr.org. We have found that women really make a lot of progress when they're actually able to tell their story to a live person and get feedback and coaching from a professional betrayal trauma recovery coach. So check out that schedule at btr.org. Okay, now we're going to get to my discussion with one of our community members. We have a member of our community on today's episode. We are calling her Sarah today, although that is not her real name. But I will have her introduce herself because she's going to be sharing her personal story and her perspective. So welcome, Sarah. Hi, Anne. Before we started this episode, we were talking about how she came to find BTR. She's listened to every single podcast episode. So before we talk about how you found the podcast, let's just start with your background. So tell everyone your story. Well, let's see. Something that's kind of unique to me is that I'm Middle Eastern. My dad is from the Middle East, and I was raised Muslim but came to faith as a Christian when I was 16. And I took that decision really seriously and devoted my life to my faith. It was like life-changing for me. And so ironically, when I met my ex-husband, he was on full-time staff with a Christian organization, um, and he was basically a missionary. I've heard stories in the past, and mine is like theirs, and that I kind of checked all the boxes. I was making a lot of good choices. I met him. We were actually taking Bible classes together when I met him. That's very typical of our community. We do have lots of women who listen who are not of any faith or are not Christian. So before we go any farther, I just want to welcome you and thank you for your patience. I allow everyone on the podcast to share from their own personal faith paradigm. And so that means that I frequently share from my own, but this is not a podcast for only members of my church. This is a podcast for everyone. So I welcome everyone and I want them to share from their own faith paradigm. So Sarah will be sharing from hers today. After you married, thinking this was an upstanding Christian man, did you recognize that his behaviors were abusive at first or what did you think was happening in the beginning? Well, yeah, let me just back up really quick. I have to say that's something I really appreciate about your podcast because I know that you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so when I first started listening, I thought maybe it was just for people that belong to that faith. But as I listened to the podcasts, it was really encouraged to me that this is just for all women who come from all different types of faith backgrounds. But the truth is, we share this thing in common in that we've all been abused. It's been really comforting for me to hear from all different types of women who have all different types of beliefs. And that's what this podcast is for. So thank you for saying that. I have a few people who say like on the ratings for the podcast, this woman is Christian, but if you're not Christian or you're atheist, just keep listening. You'll recognize that even though she shares from that perspective, sometimes that all faiths or no faith is welcome here. 
Okay, so that being said, let's talk about your husband's abusive behaviors. Did you recognize them as that? No. What I will say is yes and no. No, I didn't have a category or the right verbiage for it. But what I did know was something was terribly wrong from the very beginning. And yet he is a master manipulator, like a lot of men I've heard about on this podcast. And so sadly, I kept thinking, well, if I would change, or maybe I'm being ridiculous, I kept questioning myself. A lot of that comes from my own family of origin and not understanding what is abusive behavior and what's not. But innately, I knew something was terribly wrong. On our honeymoon, my ex-husband actually decided to play volleyball in a two-on-two tournament for two days in a row with a totally hot woman in her bikini and flirt with her the whole time. Now, I asked him about it. I'm a person who's forthright in what I feel. And I told him I felt hurt, said that I didn't want him to do it. And the next day he did it again. But in the conversations with him, I always came away feeling like I was being overly protective, overly jealous. I was insane. And so right from the get-go, there was a precedent set that he could kind of do whatever he wanted and flip the switch and flip it all around. And I would feel like, what is wrong with me? That continued. And so in my gut, I always knew there was something terribly wrong. But my ex-husband, like so many people I've heard about on this podcast, which really helped me not feel alone, by the way, he's very well liked. He's always been the pastor's best friend. He's a successful businessman. He was actually a star athlete. And so with that said, he had this Opie Taylor image that he was just this ah shucks, unassuming guy and everyone loved and trusted him. And so I always felt like, what's wrong with me? And he would say that to me, like, what's wrong with you? Everybody else loves me. But in our home, I was extremely neglected. There was an incident when I was seven months pregnant with our oldest child. And we lived in a house that had been built in 1948. So it was very small. There was an incident where he would disappear into the office for hours and he would work long hours outside of the home as well. And in his free time, he was either in the office or he was watching TV. And I was so lonely. I just moved across the country from where I was from. I was I felt very alone. I was seven months pregnant. I was relatively still a newlywed. And I thought, I'm going to leave and see if he even notices. So I left the house seven months pregnant in an unsafe area, by the way. And two and a half hours later, he calls me and says, what are you doing? Where are you at? It took two and a half hours for him to even notice that I had left our little 1200 square foot house. So the neglect was really extreme. Before you understood it as abuse, but when you knew something wasn't right, what types of things did you try besides leaving? Like you've just given us one example, right? You left to see if he would notice, but did you try anything else to fix the problem or establish peace in your home? Yeah, I tried a lot of things. I'm just a proactive person, especially in relationships. From the very beginning, I was reaching out for marriage counseling, for pastoral counseling, to do marriage workshops. He worked for a well-known Christian organization and they had resources for us. So we were utilizing all of those resources. And in all of that, he could answer and look like a shining great guy. 
but no one was in our home to see the neglect. For other listeners out there who can relate to this, I wanted to share this. So my ex-husband was not a screamer or a yeller. He did push me once or twice, which is abuse. That was in a really extreme moment, and it was not the norm. He did everything with a smile on his face. So he was always cool, calm, collected, and always smiling. And everything he did was done with a smile. So all of the neglect, all of the flirting with other women in front of me, and the sexually inappropriate stuff he's done with our children has all been done with a smile on his face. It was not this ogre-like persona. So as you tried to go to marriage counseling or get pastoral counseling, did anyone identify the abuse or identify him as an abuser? Never, not one time. Even when he went to treatment, um, which he did go to treatment for sex addiction, which I think was a huge waste of $50,000 because it really just upped his pathology and made him more dangerous. Yeah, we see that a lot with the sex addiction route when people instead of addressing the abuse, they try to get help for the sex addiction. Some of the time, I would say much of the time, things tend to get worse because they just learn how to say the right things to make you think they're not using porn without actually stopping. It was very traumatizing because here I had all this hope for help and it ended up being more dangerous for our family in the long run. And yet I believe that the people that were at treatment had good intentions. And I think it may work for someone. I don't know. But in our case, it really upped his pathology and he's that much more dangerous. Yes, mine too. So I know what you're saying. And I I want to warn everyone about that method. I also think that going the abuse route at first is the best way to go, even if you are going to go the sex addiction route after or simultaneously. But if you just do sex addiction without abuse, I think you're always going to miss the boat. My personal opinion about it, other people differ, but that's why I podcast about this is because that's what I think. When did you start to realize that common marriage advice, like loving and serving and forgiving and looking at the positive and that sort of thing, or making I statements or better communication or whatever, when did you start to realize that sort of stuff was not working? Yeah, so... Really pretty early on, our oldest child was born almost two years into our marriage. And one week prior to his birth, I had gone downstairs earlier than normal and caught my ex-husband looking at pornography. Prior to our marriage, I had actually asked him in 01, which is very abnormal at the time, but I had asked him about pornography because I had heard of a story kind of similar to mine, actually, at the time. But I heard of a story where pornography had really invaded a marriage. And so in 01, I asked him what his experience with pornography was. And of course, he lied to me and said he didn't have a problem or any issues with it. And so when I caught him one week prior to the birth of our first child, at that point, I knew, okay, there is something much deeper going on here that's not about me took me a minute. At first, you know, I went through all the normal feelings of what's wrong with me? Why am I not enough? Does he love me? All those questions that are normal. But then I realized, okay, you know, this is not about me loving him more or being more submissive or whatever the case or more marriage workshops. He's lying to me. He's flat out lying to me. 
So was that the time you recognized it was abuse or? No. Okay. So you know he's lying. When do you start to recognize that it's abuse? Well, I'll be honest, Anne. It's been listening to your podcast. How did you find the podcast? My therapist recommended it to me. So to give you a little history, my ex-husband, you know, that was in 03. I caught him. Well, then I caught him again, and then he seemed to be doing well for years. And then the last time I caught him, it had escalated for years. There was a lot I didn't know. He had been having affairs. He had been engaging with prostitutes. He had brought prostitutes into our home on several occasions. He had done all these horrific things to our family. And at that point, even, I was told it was sex addiction. So then we went the sex addiction route for years, and then I knew he was going back to quote-unquote addiction even before he got caught again. But the truth was I didn't want to be in relationship with a manipulator, a liar, a cheater, a psychologically abusive person. So I filed for divorce. And was it after you filed that you started recognizing, wait a minute, this was an abusive relationship the whole time? After starting to listen to my podcast, that is. I've only been listening to your podcast for six months. So it's only been the last six months. And it's been a complete paradigm shift for me. And it's actually totally changed my life. And this is why, is that when it was sex addiction, there is this idea that he's a sick person and he needs empathy. It's just a sick person who has like cancer, for example. And so that's how we treated it as a family. In the meantime, he's still doing horrific things to the children. And so with that said, it was listening to every single one of these podcasts that really made my whole paradigm shift and go, you know what? It's not sex addiction. It's just an extremely abusive, I believe, sociopath is what I believe he is. And in his particular case, he lacks empathy, which allows him to do horrific things to his family and to his children, like introduce his children to prostitutes with a smile on his face. Did he sexually abuse your children? In my opinion, yes. He, on a regular basis, would become aroused around the children when playing with them. And not when they were physically touching each other's genitals, like, necessarily. I mean, what I mean is, like, they weren't body on body. He would just become aroused. And that was something I had addressed before he ever got caught in full-blown sex addiction with prostitutes. I had been talking to our pastor to our counselors, and everyone was like, that's really weird. But, you know, they would just tell him, like, get away from the children. But that had been going on for years. Since our two oldest children were four years old and two years old, he would be aroused playing with the children. And to your knowledge, did he use, I mean, the answer to this is probably yes, right? We can assume the answer is yes, that he used child pornography. But did you ever catch him? Do you know for sure? No, I never caught child pornography, but I'd only caught him using porn twice. And they were like four years apart. And then I didn't catch him until I caught that he had lived a whole double life. Now we had covenant eyes and all that, but, and I'm, I'm a wide awake woman, but he is a master manipulator who I will tell you, everyone who found out our story in our friend group was like, he's the last person I ever expected. And not only that, nobody knew except the woman, not a friend, not a buddy. He was always the pastor's best friend. 
Yeah. Well, that's why they're so dangerous, right? This is such a dangerous situation. When I talk to people about how pornography use is abusive and they want to be like, no, that's taking it too seriously. I want to be like, you don't know how many women go down the sex addiction route for years and years and years while they are continually abused. You need to start your boundaries at a five alarm fire. This is an emergency situation. Then you can always walk your boundaries back down from that. When someone says they're using porn, you don't know what else is going on. And a lot of times they're not even going to tell you. So if you catch them, you don't know what else is going on. They don't what they get caught with. And the thing is, is that even if, quote unquote, it is just porn, it, unless you've agreed upon that in your relationship, that is abuse. That's lying. That's coercion. That's manipulating. I want to read you this really quick. I have this handbook from the Domestic Violence Victims Handbook. I picked it up at Children's Services. It describes abuse, right? And under the different headings, there's like coercion, making the victim feel guilty, pushing the victim into decisions, sulking, manipulating children and other family members, always insisting on being right, making impossible rules and punishing the victim for breaking them. Talks about emotional withdrawing, economic control. A lot of these behaviors described in this are exactly what I went through and what our children went through and still go through. And yet he's not a physically abusive person. He does it all with a smile. And no one ever identified it for you as abuse when it clearly was. No one ever did. In fact, I was told, and I know I'm not alone in this, that if I would be more loving and more kind, and there's a passage in First Peter 3 that talks about submitting without a word, that he would be a more loving husband. Mm-hmm. That never works with abuse because the purpose of abuse is to get your victim to submit. The purpose of abuse is to silence your victim. It silenced me. I literally felt like I was dying inside and he went off the rails. When he got caught, like really caught in 2013, we were broke because he had spent all of our money on women. And so that whole mindset and me just trying to do whatever it takes to save my marriage, it hurt me in the long run because literally at the end of the day, We were broke. He had destroyed everything. He had sexually abused our children. So you filed for divorce before you identified this as abuse. How has identifying it as abuse, with the help of the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast, how has that helped you heal? That's a great question. And my therapist asked me that. This is the best way I can answer it. If we're friends and you come to me and you say, I'm being abused, I want to help you get help and get to a safe place. But if you come to me and say, you know, my husband's a sex addict, there's a whole different approach. And your safety is not the main concern, which is crazy to me. What's the main concern is helping him get help, which is just enabling him to, like in our case, um, up his pathology and become more dangerous. Has that helped you heal at all? It really has. It's made a huge difference to me. It's really just changed everything because instead of just treating it like addiction and all the ways I was taught, because I went to Al-Anon for years and stuff like that, I am treating it like, no, we are victims. He's an abuser and we need to be safe. And we are currently in court over custody issues. 
he's lost complete custody of our oldest. We're trying to free the younger children from the abuse. With that said, it's a totally different perspective because I don't treat it like it's an addiction and, oh, he just needs to get help. I actually don't believe there's help for him. I believe he's a sociopath and that literally we just need to get safe to a safe place. Mm -hmm. Well, even if there was help for him, the point is still the same. You still just need to get safe. If the person isn't safe, it doesn't matter if they can become safe or not. They're currently not safe, period. Whether or not he can change, and in your case, let's say he can't change. But if he could, it wouldn't matter. You'd still need to get to safety because he's not safe. That's what people don't understand. They think if somebody can become safe, then we should just keep exposing ourselves to them in order to be patient or kind or loving. And I'm like, no, no, no. Whether or not they can change or not isn't the issue. The issue is, are they currently safe? Period. And the answer is no. So that means you have to set a boundary. What is that boundary going to be? In your case, you filed for divorce. And my guess is you're limiting contact with him as much as possible. Is that true? Yeah. And we're divorced, but he continues to abuse the children. Yeah. And you're taking stuff to help your kids set boundaries or have the law set boundaries so that they can be protected from that further harm. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you tell her? I would tell her that from a faith perspective, this is what I would say, because my faith had a lot to do, I believe, with a lot of the decisions I made. And what I would tell her is that God does not value marriage over my relationship with God. And that seems like a very obvious point. But what I kept feeling like the counsel I was getting from pastors and lay people was that I needed to do whatever it takes, including enduring extreme abuse to stay married and keep a family together. And yet my children endured more abuse because I was trying to please God in that way. And I actually think, you know, marriage in a lot of ways in some churches or communities of faith is held above a woman and children's safety, emotional and mental well-being. Because, you know, that kind of abuse on a long term, I got to really desperate places. I got to places where I didn't want to live anymore. It took me to those places. I believe everything happens for a reason, but I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I would have gotten out of that abuse a long time ago. Mm -hmm. From a biblical perspective, God frequently tells people to protect themselves. He commands Lot and his wife to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. He commands the Israelites, even though they're scared and terrified, to leave Egypt. They've got to get themselves out of there. He does not say <laughs> to the Israelites, just submit more to the Egyptians and then they'll be nice to you. He does not say to Lot, just submit more to the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then they'll be good. The hard thing, though, is that Sodom and Gomorrah looked really evil, and so did the Egyptians, right? But in our case, he looked like literally the best guy ever. Yeah, yeah, and that's what's so scary about it. So learning how to identify this type of abuse is really, really important. And I think for those of us who are religious, that's what God is asking us to do right now. 
He is asking us to identify this in a way that has never been done before. For those of you who are not religious, you can say, you know what? The level of emotional health, our education, our knowledge of emotional health has increased. And now it's up to me to help spread the word about what really is emotionally healthy. The thing that's discounted or not talked about a ton, and you do a good job of talking about it here, is yeah, okay, let's say he is just looking at pornography behind your back and lying to you and coercing and manipulating you. Well, what are the other effects of that on the family? It doesn't happen in a black hole by itself. It's not an isolated event. It affects how he treats you and the children. It affects how he sees you and the children. It affects so many areas of your life, your time, your money. And so it's not an isolated thing. It affects everyone. My ex-husband getting aroused around our children on a regular basis, and he would grab our boy's testicles. I mean, totally inappropriate behavior. Well, not just inappropriate. That's sexual abuse. It's sexual abuse. It's not just inappropriate behavior. We've told counselors, and guess what? There's not been there's not been one report about it. No one's done anything about it. He's told them because when he quote unquote was in recovery, all of that was out in the open. Huh. But they never reported it as a sexual abuse of children. That's cray cray. Again, it, it's all to protect the perpetrator. I mean, we've probably told ten therapists. I don't know if you've heard of the Milton Magnus model. We did that too. We've heard horror stories from just about every sex addiction model situation. And you know what? You could get a horror story from the abuse model as well, right? We recommend Center for Peace, which is a way to address these issues from the abuse model for the abusive man. And you can teach an abusive man all of the right principles, but if they don't want to live it, there's nothing anybody can do about that. One of the things that Center for Peace really tries to do is help the victim identify this isn't going to work. Like he's not going to change. And I don't think that other sex addiction places ever do that. I think at sex addiction places, they just keep saying, well, just keep coming. He just needs to do more. There's got to be a point at which the victim gives up and says, well, he's not willing, done, whatever reason, maybe he can't, maybe he won't, we don't really care why, but like at this point, no. The other thing at Center for Peace is we're like, get to safety now. You need to be safe now and we'll see if he can change his behaviors. We don't know. We'll see if he can, but you need to be safe now. We're not going to be like, oh, let's wait a year. Let's see how he does. Let's be patient. You know, that's just crazy. Well, one of the reasons you need to get safe right now, too, I've learned is that when you are in an abusive relationship, there's so much that you don't even realize is abuse because it's like it's all foggy. In my opinion, you need separation so you can begin to see more clearly. And so what happens like with children who have been abused, I don't know if you know this, let's say it is a father or an uncle or grandfather, like a relative that maybe the family wants them to see eventually again, they'll advise the parents like, that child needs to not be in a relationship with that person for at least a year. They need to literally get physically away from the abuser so they can get clear on what happened. Yeah, I agree with that. Some women can't bring themselves to separate for whatever reason, but I agree. I think that porn use should be number one. You need to set some type of physical barrier between you and your abuser. 
And for some women, if they can't separate, you know, because of economic things or something, do the best you can, but start mentally separating yourself, maybe separate your bedroom. You can always pick up and move out of your house. Some women can't, but that needs to be a priority. Unless you separate yourself from the abuse, you're going to keep being harmed by the abuse because you can't stop the abuse. You can't stop him from abusing you, but you can put a barrier between yourself and the abuse. Well, you also can't see clearly what's going on. You know, I was like that a little bit. I mean, believe it or not, in the horrors of our story, I still wanted the marriage and a family because there are pieces that I loved. After all, I married him, right? Yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. No woman wants to get divorced. But then treatment made all these promises and hopes. And then my ex-husband was like a star treatment performer. And so I had all this hope too. But you know what did this shift for me? It was really amazing. I went to this counselor and she did a therapy. I, I don't remember the name of it, but I'm sure you know it. It's basically where they take your experiences, you share them, you write them down, you read them out loud. She responds to what that feels like to her and then, or him, the counselor, whoever the counselor is. And then you say what your feelings are before and after you read about the incident. And you do this with every trauma incident in your life. And through that process, I don't know if that made sense, but through that process, I began to realize, oh my gosh, I don't want to be married to someone who's done these horrific things. Yeah. Well, not only done them, but hasn't stopped doing them, won't take accountability for it. And every time you bring it up, puts a smile on his face and is just kind of like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Well, he did stop doing them for a while and did all the right things, supposedly, but not really. And then he went back to addiction, quote unquote. But the truth is, he just had upped his pathology to fool everyone. And at the end of the day, I realized I didn't want to be in a relationship with someone who was what he is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that being said, BTR is not pro-divorce, but we are pro-safety. Safety, safety, safety. So as you start setting boundaries and start separating yourself from the abuse, the abuse might escalate, the abuse might decrease. We don't know what's going to happen, but you can start making decisions based on safety. If that's always your top priority, you can start looking at patterns. You can start making the best decisions for yourself. Every woman is different and every situation is different. But what we do know is that patterns of abuse are all the same. They all include lying, manipulation, gaslighting, porn use, could go on and on about all the things that they do have in common. And if those behaviors have not stopped, that man is abusive and he is still abusive. He's not changed and he's dangerous. I'm so grateful that you came on to share today. For women who are having a really hard time with this labeling of sex addiction as abuse, what would you say to them? I'm very well versed in sex addiction because we've had so many experts and done so many different models and we've used polygraph and we went to a really reputable treatment center, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the sex addiction whole thing is, is he's sort of a victim himself of his compulsive behavior and that he can't stop. We don't ever put that same label on a domestic violence person. In other words, we don't say to someone who physically abuses their family members. Oh, well, you can't stop and it's compulsive. You don't have the power to stop that. We expect them to stop that behavior or they're going to be put in jail. With sex addiction, we don't expect them 
to necessarily stop. There's a lot of empathy and a lot of just like, well, do your best and, you know, keep coming back. But we don't put that same kind of pressure on sex addiction. We treat it as a sex addiction, that it's a problem that they're powerless over. However, if it's domestic abuse, it's treated completely different. And I think there's a disconnect there personally. I think there's a huge disconnect. I think one of the reasons is because abusers are manipulative and they want to have a quote unquote reason for why they did something when they get caught. And so when you catch them, they say, oh, it's because I'm so broken or, oh, I was abused as a kid. And the sex addiction industry has decided to take that as face value. They have decided to take all the lies that abusive men would like to tell to excuse their behavior or to give reasons for their behavior and make an entire industry around it. I felt shame. I felt so much shame and don't shame me or whatever. Instead of just saying, this is wrong. If you do it, you do not deserve to have a family because you are too unsafe for your wife and kids. The end. I don't know. I don't know why it's gotten so complicated. It doesn't have to be so complicated. It doesn't have to be so complicated. You know, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out in my head. It was dangerous for us. It didn't just require a standard of living. Now, again, if I had agreed that this is something that we want to choose to do in our marriage, and I want to choose to degrade women in that way, well, that's a different thing than I signed up for it. But I didn't sign up for this. He lied to me. He manipulated. And it affected our whole lives. I mean, it's totally like affected our socioeconomic status. Everything's changed in our life and our children have been abused. And yet he's considered to be a sex addict, not an abuser. Right. Yeah. And that's wrong. And that's why I started podcasting. And that's why I am on this mission to change it to be if you are in a relationship with a porn user, with an active porn user, you are in an abusive relationship. And when I say that, people, maybe because they don't understand abuse, because they don't know what the power and control will is, they don't understand the abuse cycle, they think we're going too far. But definitely we know that the sex addiction model is not keeping victims of abuse safe. It is not. Well, and that's why that book by Lundy Bancroft, which thank you, I read it. Why Does He Do That is the title. And you can find that on our books page, btr.org backslash books. Well, if I would have read that 10 years ago, I mean, I would have had tools to say, no, this is not about he said, she said, or how do we love each other better or the five love languages or any of that. I'm married to an abuser. A man who exhibits abusive behaviors. And if he stopped exhibiting these abusive behaviors, he would no longer be abusive. But he's never, ever done that. Even the periods of time where he looked, quote unquote, good to you, those were just continued grooming. I completely agree. And one of the parts of the book that's really helpful is, you know how Lundy Bancroft, he outlines the types of abusive men. I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking, oh, well, if you're married to an abusive man, he hits you and yells at you. And I know that's part of your story, Anne. But that's not part of mine. And yet the effects on our children and our family have been grotesque. It's really bad, right? Mine's the most subversive type. 
that book is really helpful because if you're a listener and you can relate to me and that, you know, he didn't really smack me around. I have no bruises or broken fingers. He didn't yell at me. He was very aggressive and argumentative. He lied to me, manipulated, coerced me. He told me at one point, true story, that he was always four steps ahead of me. Four. Think about that. Think about being four steps ahead of someone. They do this, I do this. 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 That's insane. So that book, if I would have had that, I would have been able to identify. Because again, I was married to Mr. Nice Guy. Mr. I have a smile on my face while I'm getting aroused with the children. Yeah. Yeah. So those, the, the two books I recommend are Why Does He Do That by Lindy Bancroft and The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. They're both on our books page. That's btr.org backslash books. My book will be coming out hopefully within the year about why porn use in and of itself is abusive and is a form of sexual coercion and how lying about your porn use is a form of sexual coercion. So this has been really monumental for me, right? Because we spent thousands of dollars tons of time and just every resource trying to help my ex-husband recover from sex addiction. It was the wrong path, honestly, but with that, your podcast and listening to the guests on your podcast has really helped me to wake up to this is just an abusive person and to treat the whole thing from a different perspective. One of the things about your podcast is, you know, it's called Betrayal Trauma Recovery. So I recommended it to several friends who have been abused. But everyone thinks it's about just betrayal, right? Or And I tell everyone it's not, but that's the thing. I think about it a lot, by the way. Pornography, you know, is it freedom of choice or is it just abuse? Because that's the big thing. Pornography, the people say it's a, it's a First Amendment thing, right? Like it's freedom of speech. But if everybody came together, you and all the, you know, the guy, your brain on the porn, like if everybody came together and talked about we are in our culture, we're allowing this abusive, destructive, it's a, it's a national health crisis. We literally have a national health crisis on our hands. And I, I don't feel like the masses of people are being educated. Yeah, I agree. Everywhere I go, I say pornography is an abuse issue. It's not a, it's not a First Amendment rights issue. It's not an addiction issue. It's not a sex issue. Pornography is an abuse issue. It always needs to be addressed from an abuse perspective. When I started betrayal trauma recovery in my area, all of the women who were dealing with their husband's porn use were labeled as as having betrayal trauma. And so part of what I wanted to do in labeling this podcast and the organization betrayal trauma recovery was take that term and turn it into what it really is. We are healing from abuse. So I'm trying to make the term mean what it should mean, which is when you are recovering from betrayal trauma, you are recovering from abuse. And the reason you're recovering from abuse is because any betrayal in a relationship of this type is abuse. It could be called abuse recovery, but so many people right now, they don't see porn as abuse. And so instead they say, oh, she's suffering from betrayal trauma. And then they go down the sex addiction route. And I wanted to be like, 
anyone who's looking for stuff on betrayal trauma or going down the sex addiction route, I wanted them to find this podcast so that they could get the truth instead of spending years and hundreds of thousands of dollars going down the wrong path. And maybe I named it the wrong thing, but yeah. So I wanted to make betrayal trauma recovery the place where any woman who had been emotionally or psychologically abused or been a victim of sexual coercion would be able to come and get the help that she needed. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story today. We appreciate your insights. If you would like to share your story on the podcast, please contact my assistant, Kari, K-A-R-I at BTR.org. She'll set up an interview. I would love to meet you and love to talk with you during an interview. Thank you to everyone who supports this podcast. Go to BTR.org, scroll down to the bottom and click on the button that says support the podcast. Your support means the world to us. Similarly, if you have purchased my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, which is a picture book for adults, you can go to btr.org backslash books. Click on that. It'll send you to Amazon. If you have purchased that, will you please go to Amazon and give that a five-star review? Every one of your reviews helps bump that book up in the Amazon algorithm so that women can find it. And all of you know it's important to find correct information, especially right at the beginning. And how had you found something like BTR or understood that this was abuse in the beginning, it would have changed everything. So please help other women find this book by rating it and also by rating this podcast on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Similar to rating it on Amazon, every single review helps isolated women find us. And until next week, stay safe out there.